Thanks, Jen. Good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you, my name is David Smith. And if I were to force you to eat a fast food hamburger right now, where do you want that burger from? Any thoughts? Five Guys is not fast food, right? There's no drive-through. Everybody at Westchester said uh, Five Guys. Kind of huge fight. McDonald's, Wendy's, how about White Castle? Anybody wants a White Castle? So for me, for me, it is always, hey, you guys are in town. Good to see you guys. I was from Thailand, so it's kind of a distance. Um, for me, it's always been the king. Like, I love, love Burger King. Flame broiled goodness. When the Burger King closed in Loveland, I mourned in sackcloth and ashes for days. I have always loved Burger King. And so, you guys probably, when you hear the words Burger King, you probably don't think of food you want to digest or eat, but you think of the slogan, right? Have it your way. That is the first, I think, slogan they've ever had, and this is the first advertisement. I love Burger King, but a Whopper has never made me that happy or play peekaboo with my family. But here's the tragedy of it all, is that they changed it about two years ago. It went from have it your way to you rule, which is really to me a joke, because have you ever been in a Burger King and really felt like you were in charge? Like, you're like being held hostage by a lack of staffing and a broken ketchup pop. But anyway, I love those burgers. And have it your way is a slogan that has lasted for decades. And the reason why, if we're honest, it satisfies something in our soul because we all wanted our own way. And companies know this. That's why you have restaurants like Chipotle, Corito, and Bibibop that they allow you to come up to a counter and you actually get to move the food preparers like a puppet. Like you get to do whatever you want to do. If I shout out more bean sprouts, I get more bean sprouts. And so my son Evan worked at Chipotle. I hope that's okay, Evan. They shared that for a while. And one of the things that I noticed is that there's always a young worker back there twitching because who knows when that next 50-year-old is going to bemoan the lack of corn salsa, like they've just committed a crime. And you've all seen it, right? Like you get in line, and there's somebody in that line that takes incredible offense because you haven't made their meal exactly like they like that. Like, But to me, as I think about this, you know, that's just kind of how we feel when we don't have it our own way. And so if I can't individualize my meal my clothing, my house, my vacation, like I like it, it can actually begin to feel like a crime. It's a build your bowl world. But many today would say that I don't think this just has to deal with food and clothing, vacations and house. But we may also say that when it comes to having it our own way, it also refers to our faith in God. You know, there's a statement that had, had been said in the last few years, I think maybe more than ever, I don't know if this even existed 10, 15 years ago, but it's all about deconstructing your faith. Have you guys maybe heard that statement that there's a lot of people, especially a lot of young people right now, and they're deconstructing their faith. And what that means is faith deconstruction is a phenomenon where people unpack, rethink, and examine their belief systems. This may lead to dropping one's faith altogether or may result in a stronger faith. And so for a lot of Christians, we hear deconstructing faith and that's like blasphemous. That's almost like curse words coming out of somebody's mouth. 
but it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Because if I'm deconstructing my faith so I can pull out what is false and I can insert in what is true, that's a really good thing. The problem is when we start deconstructing our faith so we can make our faith our way instead of God's way. That's where we get in trouble. It's when deconstructing starts creating a faith that doesn't require faith at all. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but that is one of the biggest struggles we're having in the church today, is that we want our faith, not only our way, but to be a faith that requires no faith. It's just a little bit easier, isn't it? And so what do we do with that in our Western world where we worship individualism? Have it your way is no longer just a fast food slogan, but it can become a mantra in how we build our faith. Our relationship with Jesus has become a bit like a burger that we can dress with whatever condiments we want. I would like Jesus plus whatever toppings personally appeal to me. And this really shouldn't surprise us. I don't think I need to say this more than once, but I love America. We live in the greatest country in the world. I think most of you would agree. But one of the problems that we have is that we are also the most individualistic culture of all time, which actually can be some blessing, entrepreneurial stuff, things like that, but also can be such a snare to us spiritually. And so this individualism, what it's done is it's led to the evolution of many false gospels, bringing good news, and I say quote good news, that completely misses the mark. And so what we hear from these false gospels is that we actually need Jesus plus a political perspective to have life to the fullest, or I need Jesus plus a lifestyle, Jesus plus a spiritual gift, a social cause, or I need Jesus plus a certain theology on end times and creation to have life to the fullest. There are so many gospels out there right now. You may not even know it, but they are being whispered in your ear every single day. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And so how do we spot the true gospel among the others? Because if we don't do this, what we risk is spreading a faith that's just not going to last. Not going to last at all. Now this isn't a new problem. If you jump back 15 years after the ascension of Jesus... There is a church in Galatia that is filled with Jews and Gentiles, a lot of diversity, and they're dealing with this problem. They're already deconstructing their faith, but it's not because they want to find the true gospel and embrace it. It's because they want their faith their way. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to them. And he writes this letter to the Galatians, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to warn them of what's false, but also open a window to what is true. This Wednesday, if you're in our reading plan, we're going to jump into the book of Galatians. If you don't have a journal, just grab one through those double doors on the way out. And so what we're going to find as we go through this book, have it your way, is not just a fast food slogan from the 70s. It has been around all the way since the days of the early church. So what do we do with that? And so we're going to go through Galatians for the next four weeks, and the idea of have it your way, we want to put that to rest. We want to bury that for good, because it's leading to too many false gospels. Let me pray, and we'll jump into it. So, Father, we love you. I am praying right now that your power and your presence would be thicker on us. I pray like a, a thick, warm blanket that your spirit would just fall on each of us right now. 
that the distractions and the things that we're hearing, that we are maybe, um, Josh, what's the word I'm looking for? That we're maybe distracted by right now, Lord, you would push off. You'd get rid of them. Lord, I pray that I would just fade into the background, that you would be so present in this place, that my words, my agendas, my motives that aren't from you would just immediately disintegrate, and it'd be your voice, your presence that is completely left to encounter us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 1. And here's the very first thing I notice reading Galatians, is that typically in Paul's letters, he starts with this greeting of peace. It happens in all of them, and it usually goes about 10 to 15 verses. But for some reason, in Galatians, he starts with just five verses of this greeting of peace. And what I'm assuming here is that he's just ready to get to the topic. This issue is too urgent. It's too important to wait another second. And so Paul is so astonished, he says, how quickly the Galatians have turned from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he jumps right into this. And the issue is this. There are Jews and Gentiles that make up this church. And the problem is, is that they have been infiltrated by a group of Jewish Christians called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers have come in and they started teaching a false gospel. And the gospel that they're teaching says this, that not only do you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision and some of these other old covenant laws, customs, and rituals. So we know that you've heard Paul say that Jesus is enough, but I'm telling you, there's still a few more things you actually need to have saving faith and life to the fullest. Can you imagine the confusion that is reigning inside this church right now? But why would they do this? Let's think about the motivation of the Judaizers. Why would they waste their time to come in? I mean, this is the church the apostle Paul planted. This is a big deal. They should be rooted in truth. Well, the Judaizers have two motivations of why they would do this. Number one is they want power. What they're thinking is that if we can create our own brand of Christianity, we gain the influence, we gain the power, people will start following us. There's another issue is where they're actually being persecuted. Now, what you don't see behind the scenes is that there's another group of zealous Jews who are pressing, persecuting, and leaning into these Judaizers, and they're saying, listen, okay, fine, you want to add this Jesus part to your spiritual diet, but you're following this apostle Paul who's not varsity level, he's only JV. And so he's watering down the gospel to kind of appeal to these Gentiles. In other words, Paul's just trying to build a big church. You know, sometimes big churches get blamed for, oh, you're just watering down the gospel to gather more people. That's kind of what's happening here. That's part of the motivation. And so Paul jumps into his defense very quickly of the true gospel. Here's what he says in verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And you're actually turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I love the clarity here. Paul says, in case you're not sure, I want to define this for you. There is a true gospel and there is a false gospel. There's one that is right and there's one that is wrong. Evidently, though, some people, these Judaizers, are throwing you into confusion and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one preached to you, let them be under God's curse. And just in case Paul didn't catch their attention the first time, 
He says, if we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, last time I checked, Christianity was supposed to be a faith of peace. And here's Paul writing this letter, casting out his desire for people to be cursed. And so you may be thinking now, wait a minute. Is Paul really saying that he wants people to be condemned, to be cast off into hell forever? I think what Paul's getting here to here is not that. Paul's whole hope and desire was to see people come into saving faith with Jesus. But this topic is so big, it's so urgent, I think what he's saying is, listen, if we don't get this right, there are going to be people separated from God forever. People who think they're right with God, and they're not, because they're buying into a false gospel. Paul knows his language is hard. So he says in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings like those Judaizers? I know what I'm saying is hard. I know I just said the word curse twice. But I'm not trying to please people. If I were still trying to please people, it says, I would not be a servant of Christ. And I think it's worth pausing here and just reminding ourselves, if our main reason of following Jesus is to please people, to please your spouse, to please your parents, to please your friend, we are not following Jesus, we are still following ourselves. If you're following Jesus just to please others, I just want you to be careful. Because the reality is you're probably not following him. You're probably still following yourself. And so we fast forward to chapter 2. And Paul starts diving into his history, which is a really weird place to have this. And so he starts talking about his history and where he's been and what he's gone through. And I think the reason why Paul's doing this is he wants you to know, here's a little bit of my background. So you can see the hand of God all over my history. It's his way of saying, this isn't my idea. I'm not bringing you this gospel, the gospel of Paul. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his idea. This is his story. And so he says that after 14 years in Judea, I went up again to Jerusalem. And this time I went with Barnabas. And I took Titus along. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel. This is what I've been preaching to the Gentiles. Paul lays it out. And the reason he does this is I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And so Paul takes the opportunity to share with other people, more experienced leaders, this is the gospel I've been presenting. Because Paul didn't want to be running in vain, which means I don't want to be presenting a perverse, perverted gospel. I want to make sure this is true and not false. He goes on, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And so the fact that Titus is a Greek tells us one thing, that he is so not Jewish. And so they're running around with this guy that everybody's like, well, he's obviously not Jewish. He's Greek. And so imagine the pressure of that time for Paul and some of the others to say to Titus, hey, listen, buddy, you are so Greek, okay? And you're so not Jewish. We've got these Judaizers on our back. So why don't, just a little thing, just a small concession. Why don't you get circumcised, and then therefore, people will get off our backs. And they'll see that, hey, we're actually maybe Jesus plus some of these old covenant laws. We don't believe it, but at least they'll leave us alone. 
you can imagine poor Titus going, yeah, that's not a small concession. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yet not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. This matter arose because some false believers, the Judaizers, had infiltrated our ranks, I love this, to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Let's just get this clear. You got salvation in one hand, you got performance in the other. The moment that we attach performance to salvation, that performance becomes a yoke of slavery. I don't care how great, how holy, how honorable that performance may be. If you attach it to salvation, it will become a yoke of slavery. That's what Paul's getting at here. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. We did not give in them for a moment. Boy, I bet Titus loved that, right? We're not going to go there. We're not even going to entertain that thought. These Judaizers, let's just say it again, they desperately wanted their own way. They want the power. They don't want to be persecuted. And so they're laying out this equation. And this is their spiritual equation, which says this. Jesus plus circumcision is enough. That's how they're living their lives. That's what they're teaching everyone else. They're showing up, and basically what they're saying is, hey, guys, I think you got it wrong from Paul. It's Jesus plus circumcision equals enough. And it's not just circumcision. They're throwing in all sort of old covenant laws, dining restrictions, you name it. But Jesus plus works plus circumcision, all of that equals enough. And Paul and the others don't give in for a moment. You want to know why they don't give in? Because Paul sees this as a war. It is the gospel of Jesus that is under attack. And so what Paul does, just imagine this dividing line right here. Sorry for you guys on this side. But there's a dividing line, and this is the group that is perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the group that is preserving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you've got to decide. You can't just hang out on the line. Which group are you going to be in? guys, this is the same for each and every one of us. We are all on this line, and we have to make a decision at some point. Am I going to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ, or am I going to pervert it? Which camp, which group am I going to be in? And the outcome is going to determine if our freedom actually becomes slavery. A few verses later, Paul tells this amazing story, and the story is all about reminding each and every one of us we're all susceptible. We're all vulnerable to this. Now, you may be thinking kind of like I was thinking as I was reading this story this week, but wait a minute. I've been following Jesus for a long time. I'm not vulnerable to perverting the gospel. Like, don't you know my resume? Don't you know my background? And we can actually take offense to that thought. But then we read this next story, and we see that no matter how committed we are to Jesus, we can still fall to this trap. Let me jump in, verse 11. Look who we meet right off the bat. When Cephas, this is Peter, the apostle Peter. I know that Peter can be a bonehead at times. He's made some major mistakes throughout the Gospels. But this is a Hall of Famer when it comes to faith. This is Peter, the apostle. Paul says, when I came to Antioch, why well, had opposed Peter to his face? Because he stood condemned. He was guilty of gospel perversion. Peter was. Of all people, for before certain men came from James, who was over the Jerusalem church, these Jewish believers, these Judaizers, before they came, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. 
So I want you to picture a junior high lunchroom because that's really what's going on here. Before these Judaizers came, Peter would have lunch with the Gentiles. They would share applesauces and napkins and talk about their day, what they're going to do on recess. They had no problem with one another. But as soon as these Judaizers showed up, when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and he would separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. I love what Paul calls the Judaizers here. The circumcision group reminds us again the equation. Jesus plus circumcision to them was enough. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. It's so contagious that even Barnabas was led astray. Do you guys know who Barnabas was? The son of encouragement, the pastor of all pastors. Like, this would be Rusty Gever falling prey to this. Like, he's just like, what? That's not going to happen. That's Barnabas. That's the kind of man he was. So not only do you have Peter slipping here, but now we have Barnabas pulled into this deceit. Well, when I saw that Peter and Barnabas were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, following this false gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, Well, Peter, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So then how is it then that you're forcing all these Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, I believe that's sarcasm there. I think he's poking a little bit at Peter. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Justified means to receive the salvation of Jesus in your life. Justification is just a huge word for salvation. We are not saved by the works of the law, like circumcision or dieting restrictions or even eating with Gentiles, but we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified. We may be saved by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, what Paul is saying is that Jesus plus nothing is enough. You've got the equation wrong. What they're teaching you is a lie. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus plus nothing is enough. The customs, the works, the rituals do not save. And some of those customs, by the way, are really good. And they're going to make you more like Jesus. But they cannot be prerequisites for salvation. That's what Peter is doing wrong in this moment. Is he saying, in order for you to be saved, not only do you need Jesus, but you need a few of these other things. And that is a yoke of slavery he's placing on others. And so Paul's in the middle of a war that is even leading some of the most committed followers of Jesus, Peter and Barnabas, astray. And so who are we to think that we're not vulnerable? Like, I like to think that I'm a pretty committed follower of Jesus, but I'm not going to put my name up there with Barnabas and Peter. And so who would I be to think I'm not vulnerable, I'm not susceptible, because this war is still happening today? Because whether you know it or not, what so many of us are being told on a daily basis is that what we need is Jesus plus Christian legalism, or Jesus plus Christian nationalism, or Jesus plus fill the blank. And Paul is saying, no, Jesus alone is enough. I mean, it's not even Jesus plus serving the poor, or Jesus plus tithing 10%, all really good things. But here's my point, and the crux of this entire message, if you get nothing else from today, please, 
please hear this, is that the moment that we add any of these other things as being mandatory for our souls to be saved, we cheapen the completeness of the cross. The moment we say that any of this other stuff, I don't care how good it is, is mandatory for our souls to be saved, you are cheapening the completeness of the cross, whether we know it or not. Jesus died for our sins once and for all. It's enough. It's sufficient. And so therefore, it doesn't matter how many times you go to church a month or what flag you're waving in the streets. Because the moment we think those things are prerequisites for salvation, as much as I love you guys coming out to church, it's great. But the moment that you have to have that thing as a mandatory item for my soul to be saved, what we're communicating is that the cross is incomplete. The cross is incomplete. And that Jesus needs my actions to complete his defeat of death. I don't know about you, but I don't want there to ever be a moment in my life where accidentally or intentionally I am communicating, Jesus, you need my actions to complete your defeat of death. That is what you call perversion of the gospel. Jesus says, I died on the cross for your sins and I rose again to give you life. All I want for you as you step into saving grace is an honest yes. That's all he's asking. Will you say yes to embrace me as the Lord and Savior of your life forever? We're going to have prayer teams up here at the end. And if you have never given your life to Jesus, you've never said yes, you've never received that gift, these teams would love to tell you more. They'd love to pray for you. Now, if you want to do that on your own, you can. Lord Jesus, come into my life as my Lord and Savior who died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me life. But coming down and talking to others, we can begin to let you know there's so much more to it than just a prayer. There is a life of satisfaction and joy and completeness, not perfection, not lacking struggle, but a life that is so rich, so meaningful, that he wants for each and every one of us. Faith in Jesus is not like ordering from a menu. You pick what you want, you subtract what you don't. We're not building a burger here. It's not have it your own way. People are made right by faith in Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing is enough. And because he's enough, then we live for him. We do the things that Jesus did. Not to save us, but because he's our savior. It overflows out of our life. And if that's not happening, that's where we have to pause and ask ourselves, if my life is not resembling the life of Jesus. I'm not proactively trying to do the things that Jesus did. I don't want you to get into a salvation question necessarily, but just ask yourself, whose way is my life really following? Is it my way or is it his way? And if it's my way, who's really the savior of my life? I'm not challenging your salvation. I'm just trying to get all of us to ask the important Questions. There's no other gospel than the one we've received from Jesus. He is enough. And for the next four weeks, we're going to go through the book of Galatians to push back against this lie of the world that says, have it your way. So let me close with this last verse from Colossians chapter 2. 
verse 8, Paul says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. And so here's what I want for us. North Star, let's not be a church that is captured by empty philosophies. Because when we're captured by empty philosophies, the front doors of our church are going to shrink and they're going to become more narrow. But if it's Jesus plus nothing is enough, what happens to the front doors of North Star is they begin to widen. And all of a sudden, the doors open for the attic because it's not Jesus plus sobriety is enough. And then the doors open wider for the marginalized because it's not Jesus plus prosperity equals enough. And then the doors begin to widen for everybody who's hurting. Everybody who's down and out. Because it's not Jesus plus a certain lifestyle is enough. Jesus plus a reputation, a perfect past, a portfolio. It's Jesus plus nothing is enough in order to be saved. And so therefore what that means is that everybody is welcome here. Everybody, no matter your past, your present, this can be home for you. Go tell your friends. Go tell those in your life who are down and out. Those who feel like outcasts. This is home for them if they choose for it to be. Now here's the risk with that. As we widen our doors, and I believe our church is already this. I just want more of that. I want people over the care center. For those of you that are here, I want you to know this is your home as well. It doesn't end right there in that hallway. And as you mix different people together, What's going to happen is we're going to find ourselves not agreeing on all that much. We're going to have people in the same room that don't have the same political perspective. We're going to have people in the room that don't necessarily agree on how to best live our life for God. But you know what we are going to agree on? That Jesus plus nothing is enough. That we will agree on. Jesus plus nothing is enough. Let's pray. So Father, we ask right now, would you widen the doors of our church? That people who are hurting down and out and feel like they don't have a home can find their way here. Not to be, to be entertained by North Star, but to encounter you, the living God. And so I just pray right now, Father, would your power and your presence come over us in a way that breaks off shackles, breaks off chains. Because if there's anything in us right now that is perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, let it be done, let it be finished. It's you and you alone that we need. And so, Lord, we want people to find that type of freedom. Those who are not here right now, and for those of us who are in this room, who are watching online, Lord, would you meet us, would you help us encounter you in a powerful and personal way.
yourself in this terrible place. And as, I, as you read the story, Jill, she finally finds a spring of water. She can hear the rushing water up ahead. And, and so that's the good news. But here's the bad news. Is standing between her and the stream of water is this really big, scary lion. Now, in, in the story, Jill doesn't know that the lion is kind of the Jesus figure. His name is Aslan. All she sees is a really big, scary lion. And I want to read a little excerpt uh, from the book about their interaction. The lion said, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Now the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving Jill nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come close, said Jill. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she came a step closer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion, for no one who saw his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream and she knelt down and she began scooping up water in her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. And in this little story, Jesus is represented here both by the lion and by the stream. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who will not budge. He will not fit into our box. He will not wear any sort of banner that we try to make him be. He's Jesus plus nothing. He's immovable. He's mighty. And in the story, uh, the, the stream is also represented by Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 7, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me Life is found in Christ. Satisfaction is found in him. Peace is found in him. Eternal security is found in him and him alone. And if there's anyone in this room, if you find yourself in that wilderness place searching for a stream, it starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. And so we want to respond in worship uh, to Jesus like we do every Sunday. We want to sing. We want to exalt the name of Jesus and his kingdom. We're also going to respond by taking this, this practice of communion is open for anyone who's a believer in Christ. It symbolizes his body broken for us and his blood poured out. And when we take communion, we're remembering not only what he's done, not only that he's ushered the kingdom in, but that he's coming back again. And he's going to restore and make everything new. So we take communion to declare his kingship in our life. We're also going to have prayer teams up front here. You can come get prayer for anything going on in your life. But specifically,